Jesus, but we're taking a break today. We're going to be in the book of John, chapter 20, verses 24 to 31. And, and in fact, this, uh, this narrative takes place um, a week after Jesus uh, is resurrected. And this morning, during the sunrise service, while we were freezing outside, we talked about, uh, we talked about Jesus visiting his disciples the night um, that he... The, the night of the day that he rose from the dead. So we talked about that narrative, which is just the verses 19 to 25, um, or 23, I'm sorry. So this is kind of a continuation. If you're here this morning for the sunrise service, you're like, oh, good, he's not preaching the same message, right? <clears throat> it's a different message. And so we're going to talk about this, and, and we're going to talk about authentic believing. Authentic believing. And so as we think about that this morning, I want to start with this illustration. Thomas A. Miller a surgeon and researcher, explores the miracle of Christ's resurrection from the medical angle. Dr. Miller uh, notes that the body contains trillions and, and may, uh, maybe even 100 trillion cells. Each one of these cells carries out thousands of different chemical reactions. Thus, a bodily resurrection would require, quote-unquote, some phenomenal power to energize life into all these individual cells, but it would have to do so in such a way that specialized nerve cells could resume their unique function. Heart cells perform theirs, blood cells and bone cells do theirs, and so on. So that's a quote from him. He's like, not only are they going to have to uh, restart, but they're going to have to kind of pick up where they left off. And so that's kind of incredible. And Dr. Miller continues, Consider the heart as just one example. It beats on, a on average 70 times a minute, 4,200 times an hour, 100,800 times a day, and 36,288,000 times a year. And for that to happen, thousands of processes within each cell must act in a coordinated way to ensure that the blood entering the right side of the heart is effectively propelled into the lungs, where the red blood cells contained in it discharge carbon dioxide and pick up oxygen, following which it returns to the left side of the heart, where it is propelled to the tissues of the rest of the body, <clears throat> do, that, <clears throat> do that they might reserve, I'm sorry, receive precious oxygen they need to sustain their many functions. This all happens at least every second uh, in such a smooth fashion that we're not even aware of it. And at the moment we die, all these processes come to a screeching halt. It's pretty phenomenal to think about, right? All that stuff's happening just smoothly. God just orchestrates all that. He just sustains us and takes care of us. So he goes on and he says, A bodily resurrection implies that thousands of processes in trillions of cells must be restarted with the unique intricacy and intercoordination that existed before death. Dr. Miller notes that this would require not just incredible power, but also unimaginable knowledge. He writes, Even the latest science has not unraveled the complete mystery of each of the cells of our bodies and how they interact and quote-unquote talk with one another. But for the resurrection of Jesus to occur, all of that information had to be known in its completeness and totality and known some 2,000 years ago. So doesn't that make it even more phenomenal? Like, they didn't have the sciences that we have today, <clears throat> the technology and medicine, and this happened 2,000 years ago by the power of God, right? By the power of God. That's the God that we serve. <clears throat> so as I think about some of this for myself... I think about like third-party authentication. The push to protect our online accounts is, is never-ending, isn't it? 
In recent years, uh, there's been a push for third-party authentication, especially for financial accounts and even email accounts. The idea is that every time I log into one of these accounts, they uh, will either text or email me a code that I enter to prove that I am the owner of the account and to protect my account. And I'm not uh, uh, put off by this authentication. I'm not, because I want to make sure that my accounts are secure. So I was just uh, doing uh, Levi's taxes last night online. And what, what did I have to do? Um, he had, I needed him around. Because <laughs> they were sending him codes to his email address and to his cell phone as a text message to verify his identity while I'm doing all this tax stuff for him. And so how many of us have had to do that just recently uh, where we have to do this third-party authentication? Perhaps some of us uh, don't want to be bothered with it, and so you don't set up the third-party authentication. Some of us don't even use a computer, but we're, we've probably been to the bank to withdraw money or to cash a check, and what do they ask for if they don't know who you are? Your ID, right? You have to prove who you are uh, when you go there. And so Jesus appeared to 10 of his disciples on the day he came alive again. There was one disciple who was missing from that initial meeting, and as we learned in the sunrise service, the wound made by the spear would have been a unique identifying factor that, was, uh, that it was Jesus who was appearing to them. No other person who was crucified at that time had that unique mark. We'll see today that the disciple who missed the initial meeting says he'll never believe that Jesus is alive unless he can put his fingers in the nail holes in his wrists and put his hand in the spear hole in Jesus' side. He wanted physical proof before he would believe. <clears throat> and Jesus challenges him on this and speaks a blessing over those who believe without seeing. John wants us to know our big idea today, and that's this. Jesus is pleased when we believe without seeing. So as we allow that big idea to kind of sink in today, would you just bow your heads with me as we commit it to the Lord in prayer? Lord, we come to you today. <clears throat> we thank you for Jesus' resurrection. And Lord, we thank you that through the, the testimony and the witness of the apostles and down through the generations from believer to believer, that we've been able to believe without seeing, putting our fingers in your wrists and our hand in your side, but we believe that you are who you say you are. Lord, today, as we open your word, would you speak through your mouthpiece today? Would you be honored and glorified? Would your people hear only your words and not mine? So I humbly come before you now and ask for your strength to speak your words. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to see a couple of things. First, we're going to see Thomas's unbelief in verses 24 and 25. And then we'll see his belief in the rest of that passage. <coughs> so let's look at those two verses as we begin today. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. <coughs> and so who is this guy? Who is Thomas? <coughs> the name Thomas uh, is Aramaic. 
the name Didymus that they list here is his Greek name. So it's, uh, they both mean twin. And we're not told who uh, his twin was. So we know that he's a twin, number one. Number two, we know that he's a disciple. He's one of the 12 uh, disciples. Jesus had chosen him as one of his closest disciples. We know from church history that Thomas took the message of Jesus Christ to India and gave his life for the gospel while he was there. We also know that Thomas is a realist. John chapter 11, verse 16 tells us this, Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. This was in response to Jesus encouraging his disciples to come with him to see Lazarus, who had died. Thomas realized the volatility of going back to Judea so soon after the Jews had tried to stone Jesus. So he's like, uh, he's a realist. He's like, let's do it. Let's go back to Judea and we'll just die with them. We also see it as a realist when we read these words in John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you see Thomas being this realist? He's like, we don't even know where you're going. How can we follow you? How do we know the way? And he's like, oh, Thomas, <laughs> oh, you should know. As a realist, he would have been skeptical about the possibility of Jesus' resurrection, which is why he may not have been uh, together with the other disciples in that first day of the week. For Thomas, the th- three-year journey of faith was done. And, and perhaps he was feeling hopeless and just wanted to be alone. So he hadn't gathered together on that first day of the week. He was absent during the sunrise uh, service. We looked at the episode that Thomas missed. It was on the evening of that first day of the week, the day that Jesus came alive again. The disciples were behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. And Jesus miraculously appeared to them and greeted them with peace. I said this morning, if a heavy stone that took a person to move and couldn't hold Jesus in, a wooden door is not going to stop him. He's going to be able to just appear before them. And he showed them his hands and his side. And Thomas wasn't with them when Jesus appeared to them. Wearsby says this in his commentary. Thomas is a, is a good warning uh, to all of us not to miss meeting together with God's people on the Lord's Day. Right? He was, this was the Lord's Day. It was the first day of the week. And he wasn't there together with the other ones. And he missed something pretty incredible. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 22 to 25 tell us this. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts uh, uh, sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So Wearsby continues, he says, remember Thomas when you're tempted to stay home from church. You never know what special blessing you might miss. So I want you to think about a time when you didn't, quote-unquote, feel like coming to church, but after you came, you, felt, uh, you, you left feeling refreshed, renewed, filled with joy, peace, 
comfort and contentment. How often does that happen? You're like, oh, it's been such a busy week, and I'm so tired, and I don't know if I can go to Wednesday night prayer meeting. I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can go to the Thursday discipleship. I don't know if I can go on Sunday. It's just been such a busy week, and I just need a day off. I remember early in my tenure here, we had a movement of the Holy Spirit that happened during uh, when we had two services. During second service, it was powerful. A young man was listening to the message, and as I was finishing up, he fell to his knees and began to flail around, knocking down some of the metal chairs in the multi-purpose room. He stood up and came towards me. I embraced him as, we, uh, as he kept repeating a man's name. And I asked him what we needed to know about that man. He eventually looked at me, blinked his eyes, and then said, What just happened? This young man had spoken with me earlier in the week about the man whose name he was repeating, That man had been going through a difficult time, and this young man was trying to help him. And something supernatural happened that day, and not everyone in the church was there because we had two services. The people in the first service were like, what happened? Are you sure? That sounds kind of weird. The Holy Spirit of God was speaking through this young man, and it was powerful. We want to see that kind of movement of the Holy Spirit, don't we? We want to see our people you know, concerned for and trying to help others. That's what was going on with this young man. He knew that this other man needed help. Thomas had missed something supernatural and powerful, and the other disciples tried to explain it to him. We see the disciples' witness here. First they told him, in the Greek this verb's in the imperfect tense, which means it's a continual or repeated action. So the other disciples didn't just mention it to Thomas once. They didn't say, hey, by the way, we saw Jesus. He's like, what? They kept saying, Thomas, you, you can't believe what you just missed. You know, this, he was here. We were behind locked doors. And he just appeared. And Thomas was like, no, nah, I don't think so. That's why they had to keep telling him again and again and again. And I can only imagine that the reason they kept on telling him is because he was shaking his head from side to side in disbelief. There's no way. There's no way that happened. How often do we do that when we hear stories of the supernatural that happens because of the Holy Spirit of God or the power of God? And we shake our heads and go, no, there's no way it could happen. Why? Why do we do that? God's all-powerful. There's nothing that he cannot do. This didn't make logical sense to Thomas, the realist. I like what um, Vesper Bauer says. My aunt and uncle had a missionary family visiting. When the missionary children were called in for dinner, their mother said, "Uh, be sure to wash your hands. The little boy scowled and said, germs in Jesus, germs in Jesus, that's all I hear, and I've never seen either one of them. Right? (laughs) Why do I have to wash my hands? This seems like a waste of time. I've never seen any germs that you're talking about. And it sounds like his missionary parents were telling him about Jesus all the time, too. And he's like, what do I need to believe in him for? I've never seen him. The little boy didn't understand the importance of washing his hands because he had never seen a germ. And Thomas did not understand the importance of Jesus' resurrection because he had not seen Jesus like the other disciples had. The second thing that we see in the disciples' witness is what they had seen. This Greek verb is in the perfect tense, meaning that it was an action completed in the past, once and for all, not needing to be repeated. And so the, the disciples were telling Thomas again and again that they had seen the Lord. It was a fact. He was alive. It happened. And so that leads us to our first principle today. God is pleased when we tell others about Jesus. 
That's what these disciples had done with, with uh, Thomas. The disciples who had experienced this, uh, the surprising appearance of Jesus and his empowering commissioning were apparently enthusiastically ready to share the details of their um, post-resurrection experience of the Lord. Borchardt mentions that in his commentary. I always enjoy being around new believers because their enthusiasm for sharing the gospel is contagious. They're not afraid. They want to tell everybody. They're like, this is amazing. They're probably looking at us, uh, those of us that have been believers for a long time, and we've kind of become um, maybe apathetic to sharing the gospel. And they're like, why aren't you guys telling other people about Jesus? What's wrong with you? Man, I love being around new believers. They aren't complacent, apprehensive, or fearful about sharing it with anyone and everyone. For long-time believers, that enthusiasm seems to wear off because they've been confronted with those who are skeptical and those who refuse to believe in Jesus. We are no longer enthusiastic and excited about sharing the gospel. And I believe the reason this happens in our lives is because we have a false idea of our role as messengers of the gospel. We have this incorrect belief that if people don't believe in Jesus after we share the gospel with them, that we somehow failed God and Jesus. And, and yet our responsibility is not to convert and convince, but to communicate. Paul writes to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. He says this, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Do you see what our responsibility is? It's to plant the seed. So share them with someone for the very first time who's never heard about Jesus. And then when we, when we meet up with someone who has heard about Jesus but hasn't made a decision for him, isn't in a personal relationship with him, that's watering. We go and we tell them again, this is what Jesus did for me. And then a third person might come to them and say, this is what Jesus did for me. And all of a sudden, they're getting all this witness and seeing how God has transformed each individual's lives. Whether or not someone believes in Jesus when you share the gospel with them does not uh, define success or failure. When we simply communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone, we succeed in God's eyes. He's pleased. Has the Holy Spirit ever prompted you to share the gospel with someone? Have you been obedient? I haven't always been. Praise the Lord that he gives me second chances, right? Second chances are incredible. So that understanding of what our responsibility is should change everything for us. We should be excited and enthusiastic about sharing the gospel again. And so this leads us to our first next step today, which is to enthusiastically share the gospel with my family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers. Now that we know success is simply communicating and not convincing or converting, let's plant and water with enthusiasm watch as God makes it grow. So, who will you plan to share the gospel with this week? This is a great time. Easter is today. It's a great way to say, hey, what did you do for Easter? <laughs> well, we ate chocolate bunnies. And we had these, these eggs that rabbits lay. Right? They have filling in them. That's phenomenal. That's, that's supernatural if that actually happens, but... The other disciples were enthusiastically and repeatedly telling Thomas that they had seen the Lord. He was alive. What we see with Thomas's response is that he probably got tired of the other disciples repeatedly telling him that they had seen the Lord. 
and he makes demands. Thomas wanted proof. He wanted to experience what the other disciples had experienced and even more. He didn't just want to see Jesus' wrists inside. He wanted to put his finger in the holes where the nails had been. He wanted to put his hand in the hole created by the spear. He wanted to go a step further. He's like, it's not, I just don't want to see him. Like, I want to touch him. Or at least touch the, you know, the holes. Thomas's words help to understand the difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt says, I cannot believe. And there are too many problems. Unbelief says, I will not believe unless you give me the evidence I ask for. That's from Wearsby's commentary. Some people are right there right now. <clears throat> they're telling us that they will not believe in Jesus unless he gives them the evidence that they're asking for. They want all their questions answered to their satisfaction. If God is all-loving, then why does he allow bad things to happen? If God is all-powerful, then why doesn't he stop bad things from happening? God is both all-loving and all-powerful in addition to being sovereign, all-knowing, ever-present, unchanging, infinite, holy, righteous, and so much more. It's the arrogance of humanity to believe that we can understand all of who God is and how he operates as an infinite God. See, in our finite minds, we can't wrap our heads around the fact that God is perfectly just and perfectly loving at the same time. Because we can't do that, and we don't. We're not perfectly loving and perfectly just. When somebody hurts us, we're like, I don't love them. Mm -mm, no. I want to get back at them, right? <laughs> we just struggle with that. And so in our arrogance, in our human finite mind, we're like, God can't be that way because I'm not that way. They want physical proof that God and Jesus exist, and it's the arrogance of humanity to demand that God provide the evidence we ask for before we will believe in him. Now Isaiah, the prophet, writes this in chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Paul, writing to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 to 29, tell us this. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And then Paul, writing to the Ephesian believers in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, says this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so you see, Jesus is pleased when we believe without seeing. That's our big idea. We see Thomas's declaration. Thomas tells the other disciples that he will not believe, um, believe that Jesus is alive without his demands being fulfilled. In the Greek, there's a double negative. Um, the Greek is ume, which gives um, his declaration an emphatic push. It's a strong. It's strong. He's saying, mm -mm, not going to happen. It could be translated this way. I will never believe it, or I positively will not believe. So this isn't doubt. This is unbelief. Thomas is saying in no uncertain terms that if his demands for proof are not met, he will never believe that Jesus is alive. Does that sound arrogant to you? 
Jesus is gracious with Thomas. Aren't you glad? He's gracious with us too. And his demands. And does the supernatural again within a week. Let's look at Thomas's belief then. That's his unbelief. Look at verses 26 to 29. And this is what God's word says. I'm going to have to get these out now. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Thomas is present. All of the 11 disciples were together in the same house one week later. Perhaps the other 10 disciples told Thomas not to miss this Sunday gathering. He's like, you don't want to miss it. Something might happen. Jesus again appears to his disciples even though they are behind locked doors. He greeted them with peace be with you. I'm sure they needed peace as he supernaturally gained access to the room they thought was secure. Jesus doesn't waste any time in challenging Thomas. Jesus basically repeats Thomas's demands back to him. He says, here you go, Thomas. Put your fingers in the nail holes in my wrists. Put your hand in the spear hole in my side. And we see this second principle that Jesus is omnipresent. John Corson says, here Jesus is teaching a lesson of great import, for in repeating Thomas's ultimatum, it's as if he's saying, boys, even though you don't see me, I'm with you always. And because Jesus is omnipresent, he hears and knows our deepest desires. This is a foundational truth principle for us as believers. Jesus is always present with us. No matter what we're going through, we can trust that he is here. Maybe you're feeling lonely, anxious, depressed, overwhelmed, worried, fearful, unsure, or concerned today. You may be struggling physically, emotionally, financially, relationally, and or spiritually. And Jesus is right there with you. Even if you can't see him or feel his presence with you, he is there. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6 tell us this. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So maybe today, this uh, second next step is for you, and that's just to claim the truth promise that Jesus is always present with me. Maybe you just need to be reminded of that today. He's always present with us. The second part of Jesus' challenge is his exhortation for Thomas to stop doubting and believe. The literal translation of the Greek text would be, do not become unbelieving, apistos is the Greek word there, but believing, the Greek word for believing is pistos. It's just one letter different. Bird says uh, this, or do not be unbelieving but believing. Thomas wasn't saying that he couldn't believe because there were too many problems, that's doubt, but rather that he would not believe, which is unbelief, without physical proof. Borchardt says authentic believing was the issue and not doubt. 
Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13 say this, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, I like that, daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So we're supposed to just encourage one another to believe. Jesus' presence, challenge, and exhortation was enough for Thomas. We see his confession then, The only response that Thomas could have at this point was to confess who Jesus was, my Lord and my God. Thomas's confession accomplished two things. It recognized Jesus' authority. So confessing that Jesus was his Lord meant that Thomas was submitting to his authority as as master. We must do the same thing when we come to believe in Jesus. Submit to him as our master. It also recognized Jesus' deity And this is the third principle today, that Jesus is God. Thomas knew that only God had the power to do the supernatural. God is the only one who who is always present with us and knows everything about us, including our thoughts and desires. Thomas wanted physical, material proof that Jesus was alive. Most of the time we refer to Thomas as doubting Thomas, and we can uh, be pretty critical of him. He was in good company, though, because Peter, John, and the other disciples didn't believe the testimony of the women, including Mary Magdalene. Peter and John had to see the empty tomb for themselves. They wanted physical and material proof. Jesus then offers a blessing over those who would never experience the physical and material proof that Thomas and the other disciples had experienced. We see Jesus' blessing. He tells Thomas that he believed because he uh, was granted the physical and material proof that he had demanded. Jesus then blesses those who have not seen and yet have believed. If you believed in Jesus, he's talking about you. Did you realize that today? In this man, he's talking about you. You can personalize that part of verse 29 today. Just look at verse 29 if you would. Well, and actually, there's going to be something that pops up on the screen. Blessed is, and fill in that blank with your name, who has not seen and yet has believed. Let's try it together. You just use your name. It's gonna, it'll be all jumbled, but it'll be all right. Let's try it together. Blessed is steward who has not seen and yet has believed. Jesus is talking about us. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. You see Jesus is pleased when we believe without seeing. This natu- naturally transitions to our belief you can see that in verses 30 to 31. John gives us some concluding remarks, which includes the theme verse for the entire gospel of John. John lets us know that Jesus obviously did many other miraculous signs while his disciples were with him. We don't know how many miraculous signs Jesus did while on earth. It's also probable that he did, he did miraculous signs when his disciples were not with him. And John does not record the other miraculous signs. Imagine the Bible, or at least the book of John, if he included all of them. We see John's witness here. He records eight miraculous signs in his gospel. The turning, turning the water into wine at the wedding feast in Canaan in John chapter 2. Healing of the nobleman's son in John chapter 4. In John chapter 5, healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. The feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. Jesus walking on the water in John chapter 6 healing the man born blind in John chapter 9, death and resurrection of Lazarus, John chapter 11, catching of fish in John chapter 21. And these eight, eight miraculous signs that John records are for the purpose of helping us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
when we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, then we can have life in his name. The life that John's talking about is eternal life. He says it this way in John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. You see, we're all born in sin. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and 13 tell us this. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. So we're all sinners. And God sent Jesus to take our punishment for sin. God, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Peter writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So maybe you're ready for this third next step today, and it's to believe in Jesus and receive God's eternal life. If you've never done that before, and you mark that one today, make sure to put your name on your communication card and turn it in. I want to talk to you about that decision. That's an incredible decision. We have to believe without seeing the physical and material proof of Jesus' resurrected body. We have to believe the eyewitness accounts that are recorded in the Bible. And Jesus is pleased when we believe without seeing. As we review, are you ready to enthusiastically share the gospel? Have you thought about that person that you're going to share it with this week? Do you need to claim the promise that Jesus is present with you? Are you ready to believe in Jesus without seeing him and receive eternal life? You know, our mission is to pursue, grow, and multiply disciples for Jesus. You see it here. It's on the front of our bulletin. <clears throat> That's our mission. It's the mission of every church. And so, as a body of believers, that's what we're called to as I close this morning, I want to read this illustration from Tim Keller. He tells the following story about the power of Christ's resurrection. A minister was in Italy, and there he saw the, the grave of a man who had died centuries before, who was an unbeliever and completely against Christianity, but a little afraid of it too. So the man had a huge stone slab put over his grave so he would not have to be raised from the dead in case there is a resurrection from the dead. He had insignias put all over the slab saying, I do not want to be raised from the dead. I don't believe in it. Evidently, when he was buried, an acorn had, uh, must have fallen into the grave. So a hundred years later, the acorn had grown up through the grave and split that slab. It was now a tall, towering oak tree. The minister looked at it and asked, if an acorn which has power of biological life in it can split a slab of that magnitude... What can the acorn of God's resurrection power do in a person's life? Keller comments, The minute you decide to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit comes into your life. It's the power of the resurrection, the same thing that raised Jesus from the dead. Think of the things you see as immovable slabs in your life. Your bitterness, your insecurity, your fears, your self-doubts. Those things can be split and rolled off. The more you know him, the more you grow into the power of the resurrection. That's the power that transforms us. 
that takes us from death to life. Aren't you glad for that? We can rejoice in that fact. That's what we celebrate on Easter. But we don't have to just celebrate it on Easter. We can celebrate it every day. That Christ has come alive again. He's won over sin and death. That power that raised Jesus from the dead lives within us as followers of Jesus Christ. As the worship team comes, would you bow your heads with me? You can stand as well. We're going to just worship the Lord as we close this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, The power of the resurrection, Lord God, is so phenomenal. Lord, I pray that, (laughs) that we wouldn't just think about it on Easter Sunday, but it would be something we're thinking about each day. I pray that you would give us strength to share with those uh, the gospel this week. Pray, Lord God, that you would prepare the way. That whether we are planting or watering, that you would give the increase, Lord God. Lord, I pray for those that um, are here or maybe are listening online or will listen online in the future, Lord God. I pray that the gospel would go deep into their hearts and minds and would it transform them that they might become one of your followers. And so, Lord, we just commit it to you now. We ask this in your precious son's name. Amen.